Good evening and welcome. My name is Fred Paul and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, seven months ago on March 31, the then leader of the federal opposition, Anthony Albanese, stood up in parliament to deliver his prepared budget reply speech. The election was due to be called any day, so this was in some ways Albanese's manifesto to take to the electorate. It was telling that he included aged care. This industry is a convenient political football. Reliant on the goodwill and compassion of mostly church-run organisations, it is perennially underfunded and ripe for emotional exploitation. Albanese didn't fudge the opportunity. There are chilling stories of unforgivable neglect, he said. Maggots in people's wounds, people going for days without a shower or a change of clothes, and people lying on the floor of retirement villages yelling in pain. The staff are underpaid while the operators are making a fortune. Quote, Older Australians fear that the final chapter of their life will be an aged care facility where they are not properly cared for, let alone afforded real dignity. It goes against everything we are, at, we are as Australians, Albanese concluded. Actually, that's just the start of it. It's not often discussed, but the aged care industry as a concept should also go against everything we stand for as Australians. The residents in these aged care facilities are the people who cared for us as infants, our parents. Some of the places they are shunted off to are beyond depressing. Are old people really so deplorable that they need to be sent to places that look like low security prisons to wait to die? The Simpsons TV show parodied it with the retirement castle Grandpa Simpson lived in, which had a sign on the wall saying, Thank you for not discussing the outside world. And where Homer, Marge, Bart and Lisa visited only reluctantly. It was satire, but only just. There's little joy in working out how to fund these places. They are already expensive. Expenditure by the federal government was about 1% of GDP in 2018-19. By comparison, defence is only a little over twice that, at 2.1%. The OECD average for aged care, however, is 2.5%. These subsidies don't prevent these facilities costing families an absolute fortune. So what did Albo promise and has he delivered? Well, he promised five things. Employ nurses for every nursing home, increase the, the carer resident ratio, give carers a pay rise, raise food nutrition standards, and increase accountability. These are mostly a response to the Royal Commission to Aged Care Quality and Safety, which delivered its report last year. To the government's credit, it has quickly introduced the Aged Care Amendment Bill, addressing some of the Royal Commission's recommendations, which is still before Parliament, but it's still not enough. The industry has for years been in crisis, and today the Australian newspaper reported that two-thirds of the industry's operators are on the verge of bankruptcy. This isn't new. The terms, the terms aged care and crisis have been constantly used alongside each other since the first interim report into the industry under the Howard government in 2002. That report warned of a, quote, aged care 
resourcing crisis, unquote. COVID didn't help. The industry lost a lot of foreign workers, as star worker staff, when they were excluded from JobKeeper and had to go home. Now it is expected to need an extra 35,000 staff a year just to stay operating. Some facilities are not filling beds when a resident leaves because they simply can't find the staff. The same applies to companies providing home care. Add to that the health services unions push to get the sector's workers a 25% pay rise, which incidentally is wholly justified given that this thankless work is currently earning only $23 an hour, which is less than retail. The claim is currently before the Fair Work Commission and the government has promised to honour the result, but it's difficult to work out how, given the constraints the federal budget already has. Albo said in March, quote, the days of residents going without decent food and clean clothes will come to an end. That's all well and good, but he conveniently convenient, neglected to say when that would happen. Well, if Albo is stumped about where to find this money, here's a cheeky tip for him. Tell his mates running the industry super funds, who have between them trillions of dollars at their disposal, to lend a hand. The super funds these days make a big song and dance about backing infrastructure vanity projects or investing in companies that conform to their woke credentials of environmentalism and equity. If they're prepared to compromise their members' returns for that kind of virtue signaling, they should be more than happy to throw some money at looking after retired and elderly Australians. And the irony of it wouldn't be lost on the rest of us. For a change, our enforced retirement savings would actually be used to help the retirement facilities for some of our fellow Australians. Well, on paper, it's the ultimate first world problem. Australia has more work than workers. Our economy is so fired up that anybody who wants a job can have one. The signs are everywhere, especially in shop windows asking passers-by to please come in and help serve customers, unload delivery vans and whatever else is necessary to keep the business operating. Some are so desperate that they are adding enticements far and above the usual award rates. The Sydney Morning Herald reported on the weekend that electricians were sometimes being offered a sign-on bonus of a handy $10,000. Incentives in the hospitality industry included vouchers for restaurants, free training, shorter working weeks and so on. Junior chefs can earn north of 100K a year and baristas are pulling in $60 an hour. This was actually anticipated. The Economist magazine said as far back as April last year that massive disruptions to economies such as wars and pandemics are invariably followed by a rebounding of optimism an instant boost in consumer spending and even innovative ways of streamlining old work patterns, which we've seen this time around in the persistence of the work from home phenomenon. But if that sounds too good to be true, you're right. The Economist also warned that an economic disruption can also lead to unrest and political un upheaval. As an example, it cited the June Rebellion in Paris after the cholera outbreak of the 1830s, which was dramatised by author Victor Hugo in the novel Les Miserables. 
And while it's a stretch to envisage Australians rising up against the government anytime soon, we are being sorely tested by our leaders at the moment. Full employment doesn't mean full satisfaction. To explain why, let's bring in James Mathias from the Menzies Research Centre, who's been studying the labour market for years. James, welcome. Good to be with you, Fred. Firstly, James, there were 153 occupations with skills shortages last year. Now there's 286. You've studied the list. What did you find? Well, that's right, Fred. And if you look at the list very, very closely, when you take out some of those technical, scientific and medical occupations, what you find is startling insofar as that a majority of those are actually occupations in which a pathway is through an apprenticeship or the vocational education sector. So this is um, a part of the system which is falling over in being able to train people uh, to be able to take those jobs. Well, the genesis of this, I believe, predates the pandemic by quite a few years. As far, as far as I know, the role of vocation training belongs to the states, but it's the Commonwealth that finances it. This opens up an opportunity for the states to rot the federal government. Is that, how, is, that, is that the situation? Well, what is usually the case when the Commonwealth and the states have to work together towards a policy priority, um, it falls over. And you're exactly right, Fred. So the Commonwealth constitutionally does not own a single apprenticeship. What they have to do is funnel money to the states and territories where they then spend it on what their priorities are. And so when the Commonwealth says, we have a number of skills priorities over here, and the state says, no, we have them over here, then all of a sudden the state gets to spend the money. But what you found over a few key years in which investment was so important in this is that the Commonwealth was putting more and more money in every year. And if you have a look at the reports, you see what the states do is they pull more and more money out of their system. So they see it as a subsidy, where in actual fact, the losers are people wanting to train as apprentices uh, through vocational education. So what years are we talking about and what was the effect? I mean, what's the bottom line for the average Australian family? Well, look, surprise, surprise to everybody, the falls and the cuts actually started to come in the previous Labor government back in 2012. And the actual biggest cut came under Bill Shorten, who, as Employment Minister, oversaw the largest ever annual decline in the amount of apprentices we have in this country, totaling 10% of the system. And that, in train, started this snowball effect. In 2012, we had 515,000 apprentices in training. Today, we have about 390,000 in training. But through the middle of those years, we had as low as 260,000 apprentices in training. But you have to put that in context. Our workforce is over 13 million people. We are a country who are proud of our uh, tradies and our apprentices, and there's only 390,000 of them in training. So what did the coalition do in the interim since Bill Shorten, uh, um, you know, reduced the, the, the apprenticeship workforce? What happened after that during the coalition years? The first few years of the coalition government coming into power in 2013, they were ham hamstrung by one of these agreements that the Commonwealth has to have with the states and territories when they provide them money. They're called national partnerships agree agreements. And the previous one by the previous Labor government was uh, a dog of a deal, like I said, it gave them money and then they pulled it out. What the coalition did when they had the opportunity to renegotiate it was they went to the states and territories and they said, listen, we'll give you money only if you reach your targets. We'll determine what those targets are together. If you don't, 
reach um, your targets or don't have industry validation for those projects, well then it's not going to slide. And do you know what happened, Fred? For two and a half years there was a stalemate where the state said, we're not agreeing to that, and the Commonwealth said, but we have this bucket of money for you, surely we can get this going. So this is all down to politics. We've had a, I mean, just give us those numbers again. How many apprentice, apprentices do we have at the moment? 390,000. From a, from a working population of 13 million? Well, yeah, we have more than 13 million people in the workforce at the moment. It's a record in Australian history. Uh, it's it's a, a minuscule amount. Is this a reflection that manufacturing has disappeared from Australia? Yes and no, but it, it, it is reflected in the acute skills shortages. I remember just a few months ago, there was a front cover of the West Australian that said now it's going to take three years to build your house because there's a tradie shortage. Um, not investing in those skills priorities and having that stalemate between the states and territories and the Commonwealth for so many years has just hurt the system. Well, the other thing that happened in the previous Labor government was this shift. It's kind of ironic for a Labor government to be doing this, but this shift of focus away from trades and apprenticeships, which are perfectly good and profitable and lucrative occupations, towards university education. And they, they lifted the cap on university enrolments. And so suddenly Australia's youth were, were sort of channeled towards university. What happened then, James? Well, Fred, first, the, the first point to make is that we did some polling on this as to whether the Australian people actually agreed with the previous government's decision to uncap university places at the cost of apprenticeship places. And it came in with a resounding almost 70% of people disagreeing with that decision. But there's only one other thing to say as to why that decision was poor. 94% uh, of trade apprentices that complete their apprenticeship go straight into employment within three months. The figure is far lower for university, and that's not demeaning a university degree at all, but what that is saying is that with an apprenticeship, you are earning and learning from day one, and then you go straight into meaningful employment. And a lot of the time, earning a lot more in the first few years and beyond than your university um, mates. Tell me about what it's like to employ an apprentice in Australia at the moment. Well, the framework around by which you have to employ an apprentice is the, pretty much the framework by which if you're an employer, you have to employ anybody in this nation. It's through the Fair Work Act. Fred, this morning before I came on this show, I tried to work out how much I would be able to, uh, how much I would have to play as an employer to my second year apprentice in the building industry. That's governed by the Building and Construction Award. It's 131 pages long. There are 141 separate clauses pertaining to employing that apprentice. If I had a second year apprentice, I would have to pay them $587.60. But if that second year apprentice didn't complete year 12, it's $537.28. But then there's clauses like this, Fred. If that apprentice is working um, during the day uh, on a building that's higher than 15 storeys, I have to pay them an, an additional 79 cents per hour. Now, if you're an employer, a small business, a majority of small businesses, uh, the majority of apprentices in this country are actually employed by small businesses. If you're a small business person, you've just got to get out there and do business and you don't have time to read 131 pages and understand 141 clauses. And so from my perspective and the research that we've done, 
This is probably the largest barrier to employing an apprentice in this country. Should we change the framework and make it easy? Put the pay scales on one page. Then employers would say, yes, we understand. And we understand that employing an apprentice is actually a good thing for our business. Well, who benefits from all this, all this complication and complexity in the, uh, in the awards? Well, some have said, I wouldn't confirm it, that the previous government, again, when they created the Fair Work Act, made it so overly complex. It's longer than the Oxford Dictionary <laughs> to give unions relevance so that they could keep employers up in courts, wave their hands around and say they're doing a great job. Well, no. If you forget that your apprentice is working on a 15-storey building for the day and you accidentally forget to put an extra 79 cents for the six hours that they worked on that building, you're not a bad person. You're just falling foul of a complex system. We really need to take a look at this in this country and overhaul the whole industrial relations system. Of course. I mean, you're just a small business person wanting to employ someone. So let's just, let's just sum up where we're at. Okay, so we've got an abundance of people with useless university degrees. We've got restrictions on apprent uh, people hiring new apprenticeships and the infrastructure around uh, creating those apprenticeships. And we've got full employment for people who want to work as shop assistants. <laughs> is, that, is that a fair enough uh, summation of where we're at at the moment? Look, Fred, it's a great summation. And it goes back to what I was saying before. We are a nation that is truly proud of our tradies and our, our construction workers and the people that go out there and, and, and work on the tools during the day, you know? And if we have a system that is actually limiting our employer's ability to employ an apprentice, this is something that we should seriously be having a look at and having a look at now because I'm thinking that the people in Western Australia who want a new house now and are having to wait three years aren't appreciative of that. Well, it's funny you should mention Western Australia. I've just been to Perth actually and the, the northeastern suburbs of Perth near the uh, airport uh, remind me of what Australia used to be like. There are, there are huge swathes of land there that are under construction and there are hundreds of houses going up. I mean, perhaps these are houses that are at the end of that three-year waiting list. But it, it, what alarmed me was that you just don't see that in Australia anymore. There used to be at the edge of every city an area where new suburbs were being built, but they're just not being built anymore. And that's because we don't have the people to do it. Yeah, correct. And the unique part about the system, as I said previously, is that if you go across the world, the majority of countries have apprentices employed by large organisations. But because of our entrepreneur, entrepreneurial system here, the large majority of apprentices are actually employed by small businesses. Those are the small construction firms that are building those houses. And so if you're able to empower them to, to hire more, their businesses do well and more young apprentices get to go through. And, you know, I think statistically as well, I remember that um, apprentices who complete their apprenticeship are actually more entrepreneurial. They go on to create their own businesses as well, or they go on to take over that business from, say, somebody who had been running it for 20 years. Indeed. It's, I mean, it's a fantastic springboard for a career. Just quickly before you go, James, what's your advice to families uh, and for young people entering the workforce? What would you, what's your advice to them? Well, the number one thing here is to know that doing an apprenticeship or going through vocational education is not the poor second cousin to university. If you go in through an apprenticeship, you, you earn and learn from day one. 
you don't have a hex debt coming out of it. And then more than often, in 94% of the time as a trade apprentice, you go straight into employment and actually have a higher wage of those just entering the workforce from university. So it is something that is actually, should be regarded, if not equal, higher than university at the moment. Well done, James. James, thanks for your time. Pleasure, Fred. That's James Mathias of the Menzies Research Centre. Well, the incursion of woke values into professional sports is causing more damage than Brett Lee did when he bowled a novelty over at Pommy Loudmouth Piers Morgan to settle a score in 2013. Morgan copped a few fractures in that incident and claimed Lee tried to kill him, which is almost as bad as the wounds our new woke sports stars are causing, except these injuries are entirely self-inflicted. After the national netball team, the Diamonds, questioned the virtues of taking sponsorship money from mining magnate, record taxpayer, and all-round great Australian Gina Reinhart, our new one-day international cricket captain Pat Commons has said, hold my soy latte. He says his personal values are at odds with Alinta, the energy company that generously supports Cricket Australia to the tune of $40 million. Quote, You've seen certain players make decisions based on religion or maybe certain foods they eat. They won't partner specific partners. Every organisation has a responsible responsibility to do what's right for the sport, but also what they think is right, the right thing for the organisation and a whole society, unquote. Well, what's good for Australian society right now would be for our sports stars to just shut up and do what they do best, which is throw, catch and hit balls out of the park. To paraphrase comedian Ricky Gervais at the Golden Globes Awards in 2020, they are in no position to lecture the public about anything. They know nothing about the real world. Most of them spent less time at school than Greta Thunberg. But if they do want to increase their earning capacity, by publicly standing by their beliefs, don't quote some woke trope. You'll only go broke doing that. Instead, quote the Bible. That's what Israel Folau did, and that earned him a handy $3 million. Well, when protesters throw food at a priceless painting and glue themselves to walls and roads, what are they really trying to achieve? It seems unlikely that they want governments and business leaders to hear their concerns about the environment, given that this strategy has never worked in the past. No, it's obvious that what these shrieking protesters really seek is just a bit of attention. It's no coincidence that, sadly, they look like kids from broken families who got picked last for sporting teams at school. We should sympathise with their need to add a little meaning to their lives, but it'd help if they chose one of the countless and more productive other ways to do so. What is less obvious are the nefarious forces behind these kids. Who are they and what do they want? My next guest, Alexandra Marshall of The Spectator Australia magazine, has some of the answers. Alexandra, welcome. It's very nice to be here with you today, Fred. Alexandra, hardly a week goes by without some alienated kid with blue hair gluing him or herself to a famous painting and yelling about the end of the world into a camera being held by a collaborator, which invariably winds up on news platforms around the world. 
Getting that kind of media coverage would normally cost millions of dollars. But Alexandra, is there something more sinister happening here? Well, first of all, if we wanted to stop teenagers coming into close proximity with priceless works of art, it'd be very easy to stop it. All you have to do is arrest them and send them to jail, and then the virtue signaling is a little bit less appealing, you know, with a five-year jail sentence on the end. But basically, because they're not being stopped, we have to ask them ourselves, why are they being allowed to continue and who is facilitating this kind of movement? Now, it is a well-funded collection of various climate groups, all of which are inciting teenagers to commit crimes in the name of lifting the profile of climate change. That's quite a serious thing to understand. And these groups keep uh, growing and then collapsing and coming back again, which hides their finances and sort of... Cons it it makes it difficult to find out where they're coming from. Now, they're all funded by billionaires, CEOs, mining corporations and bureaucratic leaders. So why could they possibly want to do that, Fred? And the answer would probably be because they want to pressure politicians into changing their policies to help people share portfolios along the way. Well, that's quite a conspiracy theory. What sort of evidence have you got of uh, these nefarious characters? Well, for a start, the financiers who we know donate to these causes are investors in renewables technology or do have interests in various carbon-friendly things. These are carbon sinks, the, you know, the lovely lab-grown meat food, pieces like that. Uh, they all have these financial interests that benefit from a net zero carbon policy future. And to get rid of competition, the market competition, which is better than their products, well, you get a few teenagers to go down and throw soup over a Van Gogh or stick themselves to a piece of tarmac. And suddenly politicians feel like they need to do something, Fred, or these teenagers are going to have mental breakdowns. <laughs> <laughs> I think they were going to have them anyway. But the, the other, the, the other uh, point in this triangle is the court system. Are they in on this scam as well? Why are they letting these kids off all the time? Well, so, well, there's two reasons. One, our court system is ridiculous. They've been in this whole uh, trend for a while or a groove where, oh, you don't really punish people because punishing people is bad. You know, you should forgive them and let them go on, which is why we've got crime up to here. Uh, the other thing is a lot of them are woke judges. So they themselves are like the rest of the bureaucracy where they have a few little interests on the side and uh, they let this whole thing play out as it as uh, to the detriment of society. I mean, I mean, how can more than one oil protester with blue hair or red hair walk into a gallery carrying, carrying you know, soup or whatever and not be stopped? I saw the guys at the guards walking past just like, um, well, we'll just leave them here, shall it we? Was, it was clear from the start that those kids were going to do something, but if they got away with it. you did it, Fred, you would have been handcuffed to yeah, one I'm of the side things and dragged out and we'd never, <laughs> ever see you again. You'd be doing this from a little four-by-four four prison cell. <laughs> well, I mean, if we wanted to get really conspiratorial, we could say that the judges in these court cases are investing in renewables themselves. I mean, it's all... Seems to fit. There's, a, there's trillions of dollars are in this game, Fred. Trillions. There are. It's not a joke, actually. But let's talk about conservatives being punished in another way. <laughs> let's talk about fact checking. Now, this is absolutely hilarious. You recently wrote a piece about fact checking, which itself was fact checked. 
What happened? What did the original piece say? So I originally accused the fact checkers of today of being no better than corporate fixers who were brought in to cover up or soften the catastrophic errors of CEOs, politicians and companies who make a mess online. And so, for instance, we talked about PayPal last week. That's an example where they do something that is obviously idiotic. And the fact checkers say that thing you saw yesterday, that didn't happen because it was missing context, right? You were wrong, Fred. It didn't happen. So I wrote an article about that. And the first thing that happened on Facebook is the fact checkers fact checked my article. And I'm going to read you the message they left on my article. It said, missing context, independent fact checkers say this information could mislead people. <laughs> and I called the fact checkers liars. And uh, so they obviously, I hurt their feelings. Well. <laughs> How they claim to be independent. How independent are they? It, it sounds like the, you know, the judges who let off the kids with blue hair, or you know, the, or the nefarious financiers of all these protesters. All of these things are connected, aren't they? I have some really bad news for you, Fred. You know, the coloured-haired people gluing themselves to paintings. That's the same generation that act as anonymous fact-checkers online. So they're the people who decide what the truth is going to be inside our civilization, but they don't do it on their own. They are backed by very, very wealthy interests who don't like the public and the plebs like you and I talking about how terrible their last political disaster was or how <laughs> awful their company is. But again, the, uh, but again, I mean, PayPal's last faux pas was to cancel people who they thought were, um, you know, not, not woke enough. Why do the fact checkers, I'm playing devil's advocate here, why do the fact checkers go into bat for PayPal and not the people who've been cancelled? Because it's not about fact checking. I mean, fact checking used to be, and this is where fact checkers started, there would be, say, a photograph of a crowd put up online and some would say, this is a French protest rally. And then a fact checker would say, well, actually, that photograph is from Madrid 20 years ago and it's a football match, right? That's what a fact checker used to be about. Is a service really necessary? Not exactly, because some idiot on the internet will find it out and, and reveal it anyway. You don't need fact checkers to do that for you. But, you know, it's much of a muchness. Now they come in and they they manipulate what you saw. So they can't deny, for example, that PayPal tried to find people. But they can say that it's fake news because it's not in the right context that they want us to understand it. And that's what this is about, the Orwellian idea of changing the truth by changing the perception of what happened with a bit of trickery. Well, you mentioned the word Orwellian. It had to come up eventually. It's How overused, and I hate that it's overused, but the poor guy was dead right. He was. How frightening is this? Alexandra? Well, my fear is this. We've already seen how damaging fact-checkers can be with the whole COVID narrative. We've seen it happen. Well, now we've got the climate narrative moving on, and all of these social media fact-checkers have already said they're going to come down heavy-handed on the climate stuff. So what's going to happen is we'll have blackouts, for instance, and we won't be able to afford energy. And the fact-checkers will say, well, it's not because of net zero. It's not because of renewables. These are virtuous, perfect technologies. It's because we've always had blackouts. You know, the city in darkness for six months, that's, that's normal. It's, it's missing context, Fred. So we won't be able to critique the new business plan of net zero because we'll be fact-checked. 
Yeah, pretty soon we'll be able to uh, criticise the federal government for not reducing <laughs> our our energy bills by, what was it, $275 a year. Who's but... going to reduce uh, Albo's uh, climate bill because he loves his private jets? He does, he does, yes. Well, let's talk about the quarantine facilities now that were built in the middle of the COVID pandemic. It's just all bad news this week, I'm afraid. <laughs> But anyway, oh. the three main ones are in Queensland, Victoria and Western Australia. Collectively, they cost more than a billion dollars to build. What are we going to use them for now that there's no pandemic, Alexandra? Well, the problem is they already started building them when we knew that they were not useful. So this is not 200 years ago when you can, you've got one point of entrance and you can detain people for months on end to see if they've got the flu. This is a globalised world where you cannot possibly consider quarantining a civilization. And Queensland would palaché as a nightmare anyway. We expected her to waste hundreds of millions of dollars, OK? That was a given. It was a political stunt. But the federal Liberal government under Scott Morrison gave half a billion dollars to Victoria to build a quarantine camp. All of these now sit empty. And the question is, why did they do it? And it was a political stunt. We had a, they panicked the population and the only thing they could think of was, oh, well, we'll build quarantine centres and lock unvaccinated people in them for a while and that'll make the population feel better. It was basically a fine on rejecting government policy. And now we know it had zero basis in science and we've had no apologies, no returned money and these large, empty, elephants sitting in our states that have no purpose because by definition they were built in the middle of nowhere. Well, we're in the middle of a housing crisis. I mean, <laughs> can't they <laughs> be used? Student housing might work. Yeah, Just... yeah, might have to build a university <laughs> next door. But, uh, but I mean, this is, this is actually a really good example of what Ronald Reagan once warned us about, you know, hello, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. I mean, it seems Increasingly these days, Alexandra, call me cynical, but everything they do just seems to go wrong. The only reason this level of failure, because it, it is a failure of process and a failure of logic, was allowed to happen was because in each state and federally, there was no opposition, there was no discussion. There, the press, what happened to the press? I mean, we didn't have your platform at that stage and no one was challenging politicians who were like, let's waste half a billion dollars on a prison camp in the middle of nowhere. No one said, hang on a second, can you show us the science behind that, maybe, before we move at the speed of science? Let's have a little look <laughs> at the science. Well, it was also um, d decided in National Cabinet, no doubt, and National Cabinet just mysteriously assumed that it had uh, cabinet confidentiality, which I think that's in, I think that's uh, debatable now, isn't it? Well, they already lost two court, they lost a court case and an appeal to say, no, you don't have confidentiality. So then Labor and Liberal jointly passed a new amendment to give themselves confidentiality after the fact. Now, those secrets of National Cabinet are buried deeper than the war secrets from the Second World War. Why? How much embarrassment must they have and how little science do they have if they don't want anyone alive today to ever read what they did or what they said? That doesn't say to me, trust the science. It says, we didn't have any science. So we're, we're being prevented from uh, um, seeing how decisions were made during some of the two of the most dramatic years in Australian history. Uh, woke corporations are out to get us and um, infantile protesters are calling the shots in the courts. It's not a very pretty picture at the moment, <laughs> is it, Alexander? We have a very small amount of time while there are still adults in the room to stop 
this cycle of destruction that we have set ourselves upon. Because once all those teenagers who glue themselves to things get a bit older, they are going to create a political system that bears no resemblance to something that can run a country. And so I implore people to, you know, the next election, actually start challenging their politicians because otherwise, what are we going to have left, Fred? It's, I mean, it's not a pretty future. It's true. Complacency isn't going to pay off right now. Alexandra Marshall, thanks for your time. <laughs> Thank you, Fred. That's Alexandra Marshall, whose erudition, wit and insight are free to read every day on The Spectator Australia's website. And just before I go, does anyone have any idea what is real and not real in the world of Prince Harry and Meghan Markle anymore? Last week, it was reported that the pair were hoping to launch a charm offensive on Queen Elizabeth, a plan that was thwarted by the monarch's death. Then it was rumoured that they still harboured a hope to return to the family fold one day. But only after they had published their various exposés about how unbearable it is to be woke and live in a palace, or something like that. Well, one of those exposés exposés seems to be under a cloud, if it exists at all. Apparently, the couple signed a deal with Netflix in 2020 that was worth an eye-watering $100 million. The deal was that they would provide original content, including documentaries and movies. In a statement at the time, the couple said, quote, our focus will be on creating content that informs, but also gives hope, unquote. Well, they might need to hope that the deal is still a goer. Netflix was quoted yesterday saying, quote, Harry and Meghan are having second thoughts on their own story, on their own project, unquote. The project has been delayed, if it, if it will go ahead at all, until 2023. Well, it's been a rough week for conservatives so far, but at least the old adage, go woke, go broke, remains at least partly true. And that's all from me tonight. Thanks for watching. Don't forget to tune in tomorrow night at 8 p.m. for the great Alan Jones giving a voice to the voiceless here on ADH TV. And I'll see you straight after him at nine. Good night.